Hello, welcome to Altered Mobility, where we talk about publicly available transportation, spaces, the ways we get around, and what surrounds us in the public sphere. I'm your host, Cheryl Gross-Glazer, and today we finish our two-parter on Hong Kong, the movie Love is a Many Splendored Thing, and the amazing public transportation there. Okay, but before we go to Hong Kong and we delve into its subway system, which we are going to do, I'm going to give you our moment in equity, and I'll give you a very quick recap of our last episode, really, really quick, and then we'll be on our way. So today's moment in equity will compare income inequality in the U.S. and China. So while both countries uh, host populations that are at the very ends of the economic spectrum, so both countries do have people who live in extreme poverty and extreme wealth, the numbers tell a tale of two quite different realities when we contrast these two world powers. And I'm going to take a sip of my very nice Zeke's coffee. Mmm. Okay, so 2017 data showed that in the U.S., and I quote from a Vox article here, the top 1% of earners make 20% of total income in the country, while the bottom half only make 12% of the total income. So in the U.S., if you're in that top 20%, it's, it's really astronomical how much you have compared to um, that bottom half. There's just a lot of people not living with very much in the U.S. In China, and again I'm quoting from Vox, the earners at the bottom actually collectively make more than the top earners. The bottom 50% make 15% of the total income, and the top make around 13%, end quote. So while there's still a lot of inequality here, it's not nearly as striking. And while most U.S. earners have not experienced wage growth in real terms correcting for inflation over uh, many decades, in China, there's been a huge growth in income directly attributable to government policies that were uh, begun in the 1980s. In China, income inequality is is viewed as a problem, perhaps because of their um, image of themselves as being a a a communist country and all that went with that with their revolution. Well, I would say in the U.S., there's a tendency to see poverty sometimes as attributable to individual decisions of people who are poor. We'll help the poor, but you know, if we make it too cushy for them, if we help too much, maybe they'll be comfortable being poor. Um, That changed a little during COVID with this idea of essential workers uh, and wanting to compensate them, but I I can't, I don't think we've changed completely. So more recently than than these 2017 numbers, we see income inequality growing in both countries, in China and also in the U.S. And that asset, um, it's basically due to asset inflation, uh, which means more millionaires. So you may have the same house, but your house is worth um, 20% more, even though the house is exactly the same, right? But your net worth is more. So so it's said that um, 
this asset inflation is making wealthier people or even middle class, some middle class people seem wealthier, right? Uh, it means more people are considered millionaires. On the other hand, the poor are not actually getting poorer. So there's more income inequality because there's more people who count as higher up on that income spectrum. And indeed, Europe is the only region in the world where wealth is not concentrating in the hands of the super rich, particularly billionaires. And there has been a rise of the billionaire class, both in the U.S. and China. That's not only attributable to asset inflation, of course. Some of it is, but not only. And there's about double in the U.S. number of billionaires as there are uh, in China. But it's growing in China, and it's, this is, again, a reflection of trends in most regions around the globe. So let's recap very quickly our last episode. Uh, we ended off with the beginnings of Hong Kong's present public transportation network. We talked about the peak tram, which is a funicular, and the buses. Um, in a moment, we will get to the special Hong Kong subway. First, a brief reminder of where we are with our characters in the movie, Love is a Many Splendored Thing. Mark Elliott is leaving to go to Korea. Uh, he thinks it's only going to be for a few weeks. He meets his uh, love, Su Yin, on their quiet hillside. And then he departs to cover the Korean War. He's a war correspondent. At this point, the reality of the relationship and what it will mean for Su Yin are becoming clear. She's involved with a married man, even though he's separated. Uh, she's involved with somebody who is Western and white. So, on a whole bunch of levels, uh, it's not really acceptable. And she is dismissed from her position at the hospital. And she and her daughter go to live uh, with a friend because she had been living in hospital housing. So, that's no longer possible for her and she's living with the friend who's in the fabulous house at repulse bay so let's leave our characters in mid-century asia and look at hong kong before its subway was built and i'm going to take another sip of my coffee mm. Okay, and you can get Zeke's coffee. You can get, I don't know, I guess you can get grounds, but you can get beans like all over the place. It's really good. Anyway, and they're even at some farmer's market, although not mine, but that's because of the rules at my farmer's market. And you, excuse me, you don't really want to go into the details here on that. Okay. So, from the end of World War II through the 1960s, Hong Kong is getting more and more crowded, and the public clamor for a better transportation option is increasing. Remember, you have all these refugees. It's not exactly empty when they start arriving. There's lots of business because of the British. Um, it's a quote-unquote free territory as far as cop capitalism and free speech are concerned, uh, though it's not a kind place to people without money. And the economy in the mid to late 60s is booming, and what's to be done about the terrible and increasing congestion? And the answer is a subway. It's not exactly a novel idea at this point. Remember, most major cities by the 1960s have subways. Imagine New York or London, just two examples without their 
subways, you know, if you had had no subway into the 1960s. In fact, London's uh, underground was passing the 100-year mark. New York's subway was already in its 60s, right? So it's like, what what's going on here? Of course we need a subway. Um and Hong Kong, by this point, is probably a more densely populated city uh, than either of those. I don't call Hong Kong Manhattan and steroids for nothing, okay? It's, as a native New Yorker, it's like, wow, wow. This is so much more densely populated. And I don't know what it was like in the mid-60s, but I'm sure it was not exactly empty feeling. Okay. So at this point, Hong Kong is still very much British-controlled and affiliated. Uh, so it's not uncommon for affluent business people and their families and the administrators to travel elsewhere and certainly to London with its wonderful subway system. So again, this subway is not, it's not like in a, a bolt out of the blue. It's, it's a practical idea. It's like, why don't they have a subway? So the MTR, or the Mass Transit Railway, as it's called in Hong Kong, uh, nobody calls it M Mass Transit Railway. They only call it the MTR. Hong Kong Subway, as it existed in its early years, emerged out of a series of studies and economic realities. Um, except that this did not take decades. I can't even imagine things going this quickly anywhere in the U.S. It took 10 years from the studies until the first trains. So we're talking about planning and construction and whatever, you know, unexpected stuff happens during construction. They're just going ahead. It's really incredible. So we have the first study completed in 1967 for the British government. Um, remember, still in control until 1997 to determine how to tackle the problem of increasing roadway congestion. And the study recommends four subway lines, rather ambitious in its scope, um, but the study rests upon a population estimate for the mid-1980s. Remember, at that point, that's 20 years in the future, right? We're not only building a subway for today, we are building a subway for where we think we're going to be in 20 years. And I don't know why, but uh, another study is done, a different estimate. Remember, it's 1968 now. That first study was 1967. And a new estimate for the population 20 years hence is released. And there's a difference of 1 million, which seems rather significant because we're talking about less than 10 million, so more than a 10% difference between that initial population estimate and the estimate released a year later. So this causes a significant retrenchment in the proposed plan. Now we're talking only two subway lines. With the scope for those lines also, you know, less. Uh, and then the rest, you know, we had this ambition. The rest of this ambition for a lot ambitious four-line system is table, left aside for future extensions. And here we'll have, I'll just make a snarky aside. This isn't New York or other places in the U.S. We're not going to wait decades 
uh, or still be waiting for those extensions. That's another great part of the story, but I digress and I skip ahead. So let's go back. Yet another study is done. Now it's 1970. And this one made yet another set of recommendations. Again, we're at four lines. Ultimately, three lines were decided upon. Uh, leaving, leaving out the initial uh, line that would have gone to Kowloon. Mitsubishi, yes, the car company, which evidently has other divisions, led a consortium of Japanese companies. Uh, it was the only, I don't know what you could say, a consortium of companies that submitted uh, an acceptable bid or the only acceptable bid that was uh, submitted. Uh, to build the initial infrastructure. However, and this is where unforeseen events and economic realities kick in, the 1970s oil crisis interfered, upsetting expectations, upsetting, you know, uh, expected profits, and the consortium pulls out. Now, again, decades do not pass, Fingers are not wagged, or at least, at least not wagging for long periods of time in public. The project does not languish. We have, we're talking about a complete upsetting of a project. And, okay, the powers that be, they are full steam ahead. Only weeks later, weeks later, astounding from an American point of view, uh, we're, we're pushing ahead. Rather than planning, contracting, and overseeing with um, the what was the former official steering group, or another one, the powers that be turn on its head, again, this is within weeks, and they form the Mass Transport Provisional Authority, which held, like the name says, more authority than the previous Oversight Council. This is early 1975. So now this uh, new body is going to go ahead. And instead of having a consortium, um, they're going a different route. They go with a somewhat reduced subway system. Like, let's not uh, let the enemy, the perfect be the enemy of the good kind of thing. And instead of one giant contract with a consortium of companies, the Mass Transport Provisional Authority enters into a whole bunch, approximately 40 contracts. We're talking engineering, mechanical, electrical. It's no simple task to design and build a subway system under an existing city. And we're not even talking about, you know, all the drilling and all that stuff that has to go on underground. We're talking about existing streets and all that. So work commences in November of 1975, within one year of the formation of this mass transport provisional authority. And just a few years later, in 1979, a proper subway system opens. Remember that our episode about Moynihan Train Hall with one part of a train station which took decades and here we're going 10 years from we need this, we know what must be done except for how ambitious it's going to be to riders getting on trains. So that's just an astounding difference. 
So just like its counterparts in other places around the world, uh, and showing that people who live in cities are all alike to some extent, and I will quote from an article in the South China Morning Post, about 230,000 people pass through the system, causing massive queues and at times bedlam uh, on that first on those first trains. Like its predecessors, uh, the MTR subway in Hong Kong was an immediate success. The full initial system was completed in 1980. When Princess Alexandra, a member of the British royal family, visited Hong Kong and rode the inaugural train of the fully completed initial system. In fact, line extensions by the time Princess Alexandra is going on for that famous inaugural ride when the initial system is complete... There are already extensions being worked on. We're not talking 80 years to build the 2nd Avenue subway line in New York or 30 years uh, to build the Washington, D.C. area, Maryland, uh, Purple Line. Princess Alexandra, by the way, although I had never heard of her before, was quite well-connected and quite famous and for decades an active working member of the royal family, the British royal family. She's a first cousin of Queen Elizabeth, and her mother, I I can't even imagine what these family lines must look like. So she's a first cousin of Queen Elizabeth, and her mother was a first cousin of the Queen's husband, Prince Philip. Hundreds of millions of people around the world tuned in for her televised wedding in 1963. So apparently millions of people knew who she was. Who knew? So in addition to her many ceremonial appearances and royal visits, Princess Alexandra has one more transit connection, and it's not her daily commute in London. Uh, She opened the Victoria to Brixton section of London's underground Victoria line on the 23rd of July, 1971. You could do a whole podcast episode on this woman. And there is a very long Wikipedia entry. So getting back to Hong Kong and its subway, these MTR central stations, these main ones, are all underground, and they are massive, with multiple lines and exits, all very clean, uh, modern. They're somewhat anonymous-looking, almost airportish-looking, but they are hopping with activity, and um, there's many people rushing about, stores open in the stations, lots of colorful postage. The signage is amazing. Better than anywhere else I've been. Um, I would have to say, like London and Europe... Uh, accessibility is not what it is in the U.S., um, but it is slowly being integrated into a subway system that was not initially built for it. Uh, for an American to put the comprehensive Hong Kong subway system into perspective, in the 1970s, the Hong Kong subway was in planning, 
right? Its first phase being constructed. Um, so it's about as old, uh, actually a few years younger than Washington, D.C.'s Metro, which opened in 1975, and which continues to be, I would say, a play toy system compared to Hong Kong. And the same would go for uh, other peers from the 1970s, including BART in San Francisco or subway lines in Baltimore and Miami. Uh, DC has added two lines, but it's certainly not a 24-7 extensive system the way Hong Kong's in. Hong Kong has either extended existing lines or added new lines in, and okay, 1982, 1985, 1982, There are several more recent and planned extensions, and this puts transit in many other countries to shame, definitely the U.S., but even other places. And this is all happening before, shortly before, during, and after the transition of the Hong Kong government administration from the British to the Chinese. So even that huge transition didn't stop the expansion uh, of the Hong Kong subway. The entity that currently operates the MTR is the MTR Corporation Limited, which also operates public transportation in Beijing, Shenzhen, and Hangzhou, and I'm probably butchering the pronunciation of those cities. According to Wikipedia, it operates railway services in London, Stockholm, and Melbourne. And this is not the end of a long list of transit-related work for the MTRCL. And I have saved the best for last, and this is the secret sauce, a reason why Hong Kong subway is so frequent, so extensive, so well-maintained. In Hong Kong, the public transportation system, the MTR, makes money. That's right. We're not talking about or arguing about subsidies. And we're talking about a public transportation system that operates 24-7 with trains arriving on multiple lines every two or three minutes. It makes a profit, a profit, except during some of the COVID years, but that's already over. The more money is, again, already pouring in, and it's not just from fares. First, Hong Kong subway has variable fares that depend on distance. The fares cover the operating costs and then some. And these subway cars carry about 6 million people a day. Um, to most uh, destinations, the subway is the fastest way to get around, and you never wait long enough to get irritated. 
not even on a Sunday night at 11 p.m., people are not running to make the subway because there's not going to be another one for 10 or 20 or 30 minutes. They're walking because, okay, I missed this one two minutes from now. Uh, late on a Sunday night, there's going to be another another uh, train coming in. Never saw a broken elevator or escalator, and the trains are on time 99.9% of the time. Truly impressive. Okay, you London, New York City, Berlin, wherever you are, subway riders, you're salivating right now um, because your subways don't come as often and because your operating costs are nowhere near covered by uh, the fare money that your riders are paying. But the big money in Hong Kong comes from a model that no American or European city uses. And I'll take a sip of my subway, uh, my subway, <laughs> my coffee, while you think about that. The MTR actually reaps the reward, or in more la-di-da terms, value capture of its importance to Hong Kong and Kowloon and the islands, wherever it goes. So the DC subway, for example, has transformed neighborhoods, made them much more valuable and desirable to live in and to work in because of access to the subway. But does the DC transit agency, WMATA, reap those rewards in actual money? No, not one cent. But in Hong Kong, both a portion of the rent, so ongoing revenue, and a share in the ownership of the land remain with the transit agency. So transit doesn't have to go begging for public funds to modernize, expand, or operate. According to a 2019 article in The Guardian, and I quote, The MTR's model is made possible by the Hong Kong government. The government gives us the land and development's rights for the greenfield price, the price of the land before the railway is built, says Jacob Kam Chuck Poi, other, uh, he's known as Jacob Kam, who became CEO in April of 2019. The government is also the MTR's major shareholder. The model sees the MTR construct the new rail line and tender for private developers to build residential and com commercial properties above its stations, then take a share of the resulting sale or rental income. This provides the capital for operations and maintenance, as well as for funding new projects, end quote. This rail property model as it's known, began in 1980, so almost with those first subway rides. And it's a brilliant model as long as property values hold or increase, and certainly as long as rents continue to keep up with inflation. In 2000, MTR partially privatized as part of a broader initiative to privatize public utilities. However, the local government remained the private shareholder, the primary, ah, primary shareholder. So the downsides are that uh, this model, this rail property model, favors decisions that will increase profits and rents. So not really um, favoring, in theory, residents who need affordable apartments um, or possibly small businesses that might 
take up residence uh, in these in these uh, properties. And the transit agency does stand to lose if property values decrease or stagnate. Um, but the MTR hasn't had to deal with those problems because, and again, according to that MTR, uh, Guardian article, sorry, uh, and I quote, the MTR makes just as much profit above, above ground from property developments as it does from rail operations making it one of the most profitable metro operators in the world. As of 2019, again, according to The Guardian, MTR was, and I quote, managing 47 developments above its 93 stations and depots, end quote. So there was pre-COVID controversy about dealing with the problem of affordable housing on MTR land. There was a suggestion that 30% of affordable apartments be built on MTR land, though some said that the number should have been 70%. Um, this article I was reading was from before the Chinese did away with democracy, so whatever debates are going on, uh, they're not appearing in the press. According to Wikipedia, 21 uh, 2021 report, and I quote, noted that 40% of MP MTR Okay, try it again. MTR's revenue is currently from property and that the original intent of using property revenue for continue contingency purposes had shifted into a different unsustainable model where property is used to subsidize operation and construction of new stations, end quote. But as long, one could say that as long as operations and maintenance aren't subject to the possible uh, downturns of the real estate market, maybe it's okay. Um, but it looks like the incentives for MTR, more like those incentives, are for a private real estate company with obligations to its shareholders. Since COVID, uh, ridership has popped back to 90% of pre-pandemic levels, although the airport service is at only 50%, and that might have as much to do with the political situation now in Hong Kong. There has been a bit of a brain drain uh, with a small reduction in population, and with um, uh, fewer people going to Hong Kong for international job postings. We'll return to the movie briefly. We'll just finish off uh, with our romance uh, and our history period piece of uh, Love is a Many Splendored Thing. The questions that the, the book and the movie pose, will the British stay, will the Chinese invade, uh, what will happen to Mark Elliott when he's off reporting on the war in Korea, there's really two endings to our story. The book and the movie end, and here's a spoiler alert. So if you don't want to know what happens at the end, turn off right now because I'm about to tell you. They end with a long a period of, of letter writing, longer in the book than in the movie. Su Yin, happy every time she reads an you know, she receives an envelope. Uh, but violence and death are a frequent and inevitable part of war. 
And in real life and in the fictional accounts, uh, Mark is embedded with uh, troops in Korea and he is killed. And decades later, after our book and movie end, we know the ending for Hong Kong. Although the British kept to their contract of their 99-year lease and left in 1997 with an outflow of residents during those last 10 years, um, the patience of the Chinese government uh, didn't last as long as its agreement to keep to a one-country, two-party system for 50 years. The Chinese government took advantage of... uh, the world's distraction during COVID. They took advantage of the free world's unwillingness to risk risk war and stick their neck out for uh, Hong Kong. And although residents of Hong Kong held massive demonstrations, the world stood by as China uh, subjugated Hong Kong, destroying its independent system and destroying its freedoms. In a postscript to the movie, there's two aspects of this movie that have not done with time. Uh, The first was the casting of a non-Asian actress in the role of Han Su Yin. Uh, Jennifer Jones gave a wonderful performance, by the way, and she really captured the personality of the real Su Yin. There are many videos out there of interviews with Su Yin, both... uh, in the 1960s and as time went on um, and there are links in the episode notes but there's been a lot of criticism um, for the casting of that role and secondly to capture that more of the book uh, more of the details that are in the book I would say that there really would need to be a 10 to 16 episode TV drama and I I would say it's a wonderful opportunity for um, a movie, TV maker, whatever, to do that. As for public transportation, we can all certainly take lessons from the amazing infrastructure that the British built and that the Hong Kong government uh, continued and made possible. Those quick turnarounds adding on to what started out as a good system and has been made into an amazing system. So thank you for listening today. Again, I'm your host, Cheryl Gross-Glazer. From us at Altered Mobility to you, it's been a pleasure. Uh, Contribute your thoughts on social media. Look at our episode links. Have a fabulous uh, few weeks. Get out there and enjoy that pedestrian, bicycle, and transit experience. From us to you... uh, Thank you for listening.
Sorry. 